Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. So I'm really excited about this because I know that this organisation does amazing things and I'm here today in Sky Central with this incredible building in southwest London and I'm meeting with Tracy Waters who's the Head of People Engagement and Development at Sky. Hello. Hi Tracy. Hi, it's Lucy. great to see you. Thank you How for are you? All this way out. Oh, it's a real pleasure. <laughs> I know that you're doing incredible innovative new ways of addressing the way that people learn and develop and that's what I want to try and cover off with you today. In particular, I also want to look at the kind of stuff you're doing and using agile design techniques mm -hmm. and user-centered design, and we're going to cover that. But before we get into any of that, I just want to hear a bit about you. Can you just tell us a bit about your background? How did you get into this incredible role working for this amazing organization? <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> my, my background is actually in psychology, so I did my master's in clinical psychology, um, but never worked a day as a clinical psychologist. Why? Because you just... Hated it? I, about two-thirds of the way through it, I realised that I wanted to go further upstream uh, and actually work with people when they were, I guess, more able to make decisions and kind of reach their potential. And I've always been fascinated by human potential and performance. So clinical psychology has stood me in good ground, but organisational psychology is actually what I love. And I think it's fascinating, actually. We're seeing more and more not necessarily trained psychologists in the profession, mm. but people who understand about human behaviour, mm. how make people make decisions, intrinsic motivation. And, and I think that that is really a kind of strand of HR that, that's kind of been underdeveloped in a way. So you find that it really helps you in your role. Yeah, so I agree, I agree with your observation as well. And I think it's also coming from a, a kind of world that is becoming increasingly user-led and focusing on human experience. And to do those yeah. things, you have to have more of a behavioural scientist approach. Absolutely. Uh, so it is, it is um, standing me in good stead. Fantastic. So you got to Sky by accident. Tell us a bit about your role. Uh, well, uh, my role uh, when I started was as kind of a develop, talent development consultant. It was a small team of five. It had one leadership program, there was no talent, there was literally not very much at all in the HR space. And I've had the real privilege over the last 10 years of just seeing the HR function and its contribution to the business grow. Um, and that's been a really privileged place to be. The thing I would say about Sky HR though is we do take quite a lean and simple approach to HR. So we don't have competency frameworks. Yay! Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. Um, and we just we don't have complex processes at all. Really light, really lean, and I think that's actually stood Sky in really good stead. And just so people who perhaps don't know Sky, who are live, you know listening, not in the UK, or just give us a feel for kind of size and scale of, of the organisation. So in terms of employees, we have a bit over twenty three thousand employees in the UK and Ireland. Sky itself is part of a larger group which yeah. has seven territories including Germany and Italy but my role is focused on the UK and Ireland. Great so let's have a, a look now at some of the uh, innovative work you've been doing around people development and 
my understanding is that you really wanted to move away from the traditional classroom learning to something that was much more responsive and much more learner owned. How did you go about doing this? Just talk to, talk to us about the kind of stuff you're doing. So what we've definitely moved away from, as you described, is this idea of people going into a classroom for a full day or two days and kind of taking on board a tsunami of information yeah. out of context and then often at the end of that day or two days being asked, what's the one thing you're going to do differently when you go back to yeah. the, the business tomorrow? Which to me just says maybe that whole day or two days has been a complete waste. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I could have got that one thing some other way. Yeah. And then expecting them to remember it and apply it. And to me, that was becoming increasingly nonsensical. <laughs> a, because I knew from a human performance perspective the, the degradation of memory, but also just how important context is to learning. So this kind of idea of work plus learn becoming the formula for how people actually develop and grow. And how do you get people to be learning closer to their context, closer to where they're working? Uh, and that's kind of the approach that we took. So it's more about getting people very small, very simple kind of support materials that are usually digital, and then offering really regular 90-minute peer sort of small group coaching sessions that are face-to-face -face that you can actually have a conversation about and people can share stories together because that's actually the way people yeah. learn and remember. And I think, you know, I meet a lot of HR professionals who totally buy into the concept and the philosophy that you've described, but struggle to think about what that looks like in practice. And just so I'm clear, what you're saying is that you had a mix of, of kind of short interventions, just-in-time, micro-formal learning activity, but then the way in which it's embedded is in the kind of 90-minute social, peer-to-peer, work-contextual type learning scenarios. So there is still a need for you to create some kind of structure or architecture around that. It's not just a free-for-all and people just owning it and doing it for themselves. No, so I think we, we certainly started to focus on what I would call points of need and time. And that was about going, what are the pain points for managers? Because if you become, so as an example for managers, if you start to focus on their experience, these are very busy people. And, that, and over time, HR more and more has gone, that's the manager's role, that's yeah. the manager's role. So their job has got bigger and bigger and more demanding. And so what we focused on were these kind of pain points or moments in time where they had to think or do something different. From something as simple as I'm ha someone's resigned, I have to hire someone new, through to it's that time of year where I need to kind of make sure I formally have a performance conversation, through to feedback and development. So these moments, and we mapped all of these moments and there are effectively eight of them, plus when someone becomes a first-time manager. And then we structured our learning around those points in time then what you do is you try and leverage your HR system to automate it as much as possible because there are triggers that tell you when one of these things is happening. Yeah. How do you nudge people towards what can help support them? And then how do you use marketing principles to help people understand where these 90-minute sessions are available to them? But in a language that is the way that they speak and in a way that is compelling because you're effectively selling a product that you want them to engage in. Can you give us some examples about that kind of marketing style approach that you use? Yeah, so we have, so if I take for example, one of our digital learning products is LinkedIn Learning and there'll be a lot of um, people listening to this who have that. We chose LinkedIn Learning because 
it has fantastic real-time self-serve analytics and without the analytics you don't know who's engaging and you can't target your communications and it also was developing its content using LinkedIn which meant that the way that it was predicting the future in terms of capability needs was coming from data. Again, the, the common theme there is data. But then what we're able to do is go, rather than see LinkedIn Learning as a product that we switch on for everybody yeah. through a big bang launch campaign, think about what is it about tech? What, what is it that, what does growth and development mean to people in tech? And let's go and talk to them and understand what it means and then frame our language accordingly. So when we spoke to people in tech, it means staying at the top of their game. If I fall behind in tech, <laughs> Like within a few months, I'm already behind. Yeah. So our language became language that meant something to people in tech, but wouldn't necessarily mean something to people in content or customer. Um, where if you go into the place like media, so advertising, what they're all about is I don't have time, I'm really busy. So you change your language and you go kind of bite size on the go, on the move, five minutes a day. So you, st you, you are, are using these very segmented campaigns to effectively talk to people in a way that means something to them. Fantastic, thank you. Can you talk to us about the role that your tech hub researchers played in helping you use digital learning? Because I understand that you were able to, in a way that when I was at the BBC, I was never able to get our, our tech guys to work on any of my stuff. You know, they were like, no, 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 we want to do iPlayer, we're not going to do your boring learning stuff. So how you managed to persuade them to give up their time to come and help you on, on your tech products, but, but also how you use them to ensure that you were making the online learning, digital learning, as attractive, as user-friendly as, as possible. Because, I mean, we all know the horror stories of training programs, literally just kind of a training manual being put into an online product. And so talk to us about the role that your, your tech team helped, helped. What did they do? So what the research team did in Leeds, um, they actually have a lab where because we're a very customer-led organization and as we update our website and we become more digital sales, digital service, self-serve for our customers, they need to make sure that as they change something on a website, it's actually leading to the right user behavior. And so we, we heard about these guys and what we were doing at the time actually was wanting to choose a digital partner. So someone that we knew that we could get digital content through to our employees. And so we did a long list of sort of suppliers and then we did a short list. Um, but we realized that the people that needed to use it were of course our employees. And so the best people to help decide which platform they felt the most user friendly, the most simple, were our people. And so we went into the lab and we brought in three of our finalists, if you like, and we brought in, I think it was about 12 or 15 employees and managers from different locations, different levels, and we got them to interact with these platforms. And the researchers followed their interview process, they did all the tracking, and they gave us effectively a report that told us which ones employees preferred. And the winner was Loop, was it? That we had, we had a tie, yeah. um, and they were quite different platforms. One was more of a content aggregator, but with a fantastic UI and UX, and the other one was Loop. We chose Loop actually because of what we knew our approach was going to be, which was not to aggregate content, but actually to create really bespoke content around these points of need and pain points, and to do it in a way that you couldn't Google the answer. So our whole mantra is, we only create content 
for something that is rich in sky language and, and context and you can't Google the answer. <laughs> That's a great mantra. And Loop offered you that flexibility. I mean, we, we've written quite a bit on Loop and, and mm. uh, really like the offering. So from a, a customer's perspective, you've been using them for how long now? Oh, we come out two and a half years. Yeah, and, and, and years, my sense is that it does give you that flexibility to create your own content. It's not too restrictive. No, it's actually in some ways what I've said to um, to Loop to Ben is uh, Loop is is too idiot proof <laughs> <laughs> because literally anybody can create it. And and in fact, the the challenge is you need to write content in a tone of voice, in a conversational style that is almost like web speak, not in training speak, not in HR speak. And so a lot of my team had to relearn how to talk and how to write. Because, and, and I see in the business when people want to put stuff onto Loop, they want to put PDFs and they want to put training manuals. And I'm just like, no, you ha unless you can write for the end user, then this is not the platform for you to host your content. Interesting. It's, it's almost too massive, accessible. Yeah it's, yeah, it's too easy. And then they brought a feature in which, which we also started using about a year ago, which was their campaign feature. And we use that for managers where we pick a topic that might be business cycle related or it might be um, a hot theme such as inclusion. And we design these five-week nudge-based kind of campaigns that are about encouraging managers to make small experiments, try something new, just one thing this week, yeah, yeah. and then there's a lot of effort that goes into what is that? What is that almost crucible behaviour? What is that thing that if they just try that, it's simple enough, and they'll see a difference. We're hearing a lot about agile. You can't kind of move on the on the net now, and you know HR sites for everyone's talking about you know agile HR, and you know obviously we're we're disruptive HR are, are big fans of this as well. But I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about Agile and, and it can get very complicated. And what does Agile mean to you? Because I know that this is an approach that you have adopted, but what does Agile mean for Sky HR? So Agile to me, so I particularly refer to it in the context of Scrum, whereas I've had other people refer to it as flexible working. So just to be clear, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. more to do with Scrum. Yeah. It's also fundamentally a mindset, not a method. Yeah. And the mindset that I usually summarise for people is it's about being data-driven, not opinion-driven, because there's so much opinion, yeah. uh, we need more data. Being highly collaborative with both your end user as well as the kind of people who can contribute to your product and the thing and make it great. Being iterative. I think HR and particularly L&D are really guilty, my hand up of creating, spending a long time creating perfectly polished, complete programs of development, taking months, my, my best, best is a year, and then as you pilot it, it's too late, like it's polished, yeah. it's finished, yeah. and you don't know if it's actually what people needed, you don't know if it's going to solve the problem, it's too slow, yeah. and you're not allowing a t time to adapt and kind of flex with what you're trying, the problem you're trying to solve. And the final thing is that it's it, historically we were very siloed. So I had individuals within my team responsible for individual things and then L&D was a silo within HR and then HR is a silo within the business. And for me Agile is about breaking down those silos and actually connecting people and work and users 
together much more closely. And I think this mindset thing is absolutely right. You know, we talk a lot about progress, not perfection. You know, it, you are going to make mistakes. If you're going to be pioneering and, and inventive, then you're going to get some stuff wrong and it's okay as long as you fail fast. But if we take our old approach, which is with our frequently asked questions all written and mapped out and the union squared away and the employment policy team giving us the all clear and the manager scripts and the, all the stuff that we do. Months of work there. Exactly. You know, as you say, by the time you get there, then, then actually everybody's lost interest or it may not be relevant still. So this kind of sense of it's okay if it's a bit rough and ready. It's okay, actually, if you're only trying it in one area. And I think we, we struggle with that sometimes in HR because we have a desire to be fair, to be uni universally applied and, and complete yeah, yeah complete perfect, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so can you talk to us about some of the things that you've done in perhaps a more agile way maybe give us even a kind of we would have done it this way before and now we do it like this so we've certainly uh, changed the way that we do leadership development that would be my colleague Rachel's story to tell We've wholesale changed manager development. So we've completely stopped the idea of kind of structured programs and moved much more to kind of a point of need, regular 90 minute sessions on a variety of topics with nudge campaigns so that we're trying to make manager development much more continuous and, uh, and available to everybody whenever they need it, rather than I'm on a wait list for a program and when yeah. I'm done, I'm done, yeah. right? I think when I hear people get to the end of a program and they go, so what's next? And you go, well, sorry, we've got no programs left for you, so you're yeah. going to have to wait until you get promoted and then maybe you'll <laughs> get another program. So how do we, we've really broken that apart and, and kind of changed that. And how have managers responded to that? So initially they were a bit baffled because they want their program. And what I still see is there is still a really strong attachment to training and, and my personal opinion is that we, we've got a long history through school of kind of schooling and classroom and training being associated with learning and we've got a long way to go before people break that association yeah. um, even though a lot of the, the kind of thought leaders would say that the education system itself needs, yeah, needs a revolution. I think there's also something associated with status isn't there? I've become a manager, I'm now on this program with my cohort of other managers mm -hmm. and that somehow that gives me increased recognition and I feel safer because I know I'm getting this you know, learning that's associated with the local business school and it's all whereas actually we know that for all the reasons that you described it's not necessarily the most effective. No and I think what what I've seen in the last sort of two and a half years is what emerges when you take away that kind of classroom safety is you realize actually it was a crutch for a lot of other needs that people have. Yeah. For example people have a need to build relationships yeah. And actually being in a classroom for a day or two means I can build relationships. There is a piece that you've just described which is about recognition. Yeah. This is actually saying that I've made it or that I'm someone that's important. Yeah. Um, or I've got the certificate that says that I have actually learned something, hopefully. And so it starts to be, when you take that away, what you then equally have to be committed to is how am I helping those needs be met, either through other parts of my team, through the engagement part, or through other parts of HR, yeah. or through the business. And hence, as you say, the collaboration piece, you know, it's not just that you look after learning, there are other things that they were getting from that, yeah. that if you're doing it in a different way, need to yeah. be met in different ways. And that's what you see as well, because the other thing that we've changed is, is the way that we approach 
employee engagement, all the things that we that come from HR that are owned by HR that are designed to improve and enhance people's attachment to being part of Sky, is rather than having individuals responsible for each part, where they actually work in a squad and they have a work stack that they share and they pair up on things so there's no single point of failure. And what you find is that they're able to join the dots together and they're able to create this much more seamless story and experience for people. Um, and that's what it's about. How do you make the employee's experience simpler, you know, more enjoyable, something they feel more attached to? And when you've got a team of people, in my case five people, looking after multiple parts of that connected and together and collaborating, then to me you get a better output and a better experience. Finally, you talked a lot about the marketing side of things being data-driven, which isn't always what people necessarily associate with marketing, but is absolutely spot on. How are you measuring the impact of the, of the change in approach that you've taken? So there's a couple of different ways that you can now measure it. So if you're using a digital platform that has, for me, non-negotiably, self-serve real-time analytics, then you can see from user behavior what are people accessing? How many? How often? When? How many people are not accessing it? How many people are just going in once and then disappearing? Yeah. So you can start to actually create personas around different types of managers, for example, and then you can change your marketing tactics yeah. to those, those segments. So that's one type of data. The second one is around our engagement scores. So we measure our engagement twice a year, and what we're looking for is things like growth, how people see feedback, recognition, my manager, and based on those scores, we're looking to see that we're tracking really strongly, are improving, and getting closer and closer to the high-performing benchmark. So that gives us a kind of snapshot. And equally, we can see where there are areas that have perhaps lower scores on growth, lower scores on recognition, and we can segment them and go after them in a much more targeted way. Uh, and that's important. And then we also talk to our, we talk to managers all the time. So my team are always doing kind of end user interviews. They're always kind of gathering what was your experience of that particular campaign? What would you do differently? And they're doing it through conversation. Not the happy sheet. Not the happy sheet. Yeah. So they'll do a kind of 10 minute, have you got 10 minutes? Yeah. Have a chat. They've got their kind of questions, very design thinking based around what was their experience. And then they can improve it for next time. So it's just a constant loop of feedback. Tracy, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for Thank spending you, the Lucy. time with us I'm today. I'm glad we finally got here. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.